So I so appreciate you coming out, you coming back even though you knew I was preaching, Uh, taking notes like you do, leaning in like you do. Uh, We're in the middle of a story that uh, in the the Gospels, it's really important. We worked through about half of it last week. We're going to work through the second half uh, today. And it's found in Luke chapter 5. It's titled, Jesus Heals a Man with Leprosy. In one of the villages... Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. And when, he, when the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. He said, Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. And this will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. So the main character in this story, in this encounter, is Jesus. And last week we were reminded, and I need to do just a little bit of recap. If you missed last week, you really need to go back and hear that sermon online or grab a CD on your way out. But I'm going to do my best here to try and recap us a little bit and get us on the same page. We were reminded last week that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity, so Jesus is the foundation. He's what we're leaning on. He's, he's what all this is coming back to. But as we move into our faith, we have this tendency to kind of slip other things into that cornerstone spot and think that they're the most meaningful thing to my walk with God and to my faith. And, and they're good things most of the time. You know, we'll just, we'll think, well, man, the, the Bible translation I read from, that's the most meaningful thing in my walk with God, or the way I worship, or the kind of church I go to, that's really the most meaningful thing. Or we can even start to attribute an attribute of God into that cornerstone position. And we'll say, well, love or grace is the most important thing. That's the cornerstone of Christianity. And those are good things, and they need to be in our Christian walk, but they're not cornerstones. Because if you want to know what love looks like, or if you want to know what grace should look like, you don't go off your feeling. You have to look to Jesus Christ to know what perfect love is and to know what perfect grace should look like. So naturally, the conclusion is that we need Jesus because without Jesus, we're ultimately unfulfilled and lost. But with Jesus, we have a full life. See, I find uh, pursue that new job Pursue the new position if that's what you think you should do, but don't think for a second that that's going to change who you are or that that's going to be the thing that finally uh, makes you feel good or fulfills you or changes your world. Yeah, fine, get, get you a nice house, have a fun hobby, a nice hobby, but don't think for a second that that is going to change your world or make you feel better or feel good about who you are. We need Jesus. We need Jesus for that. 
He said, I came to give you life to the full. I came to fill you up. And three things I must know and believe about Jesus. First one is the incarnation, God entering time and space, God taking on flesh and blood. Second one is the crucifixion, God taking the sins of the world, every curse of the world on himself, sacrificing himself on a cross. And the resurrection, the grave not being able to hold Jesus down, him coming back from the dead. And we see those three things represented in this story. I mean, Jesus is in this man's village. He's reaching out to the man. That represents incarnation. You know, Jesus hanging from a cross, dying our death for us. I mean, that's him saying, I am willing. I am willing. And an empty tomb just says to us, be healed. Be healed of your death. Be healed of your sin. So really, these two weeks have had an emphasis on the incarnation. And there's two things I want you to know about the incarnation. It's that Jesus is fully God, and when he came to earth, he was fully man. Fully God, fully man. And so while these two weeks, while this two-part message has had an emphasis on the incarnation part of the story, um, last week was really just an emphasis on how God became fully man. And how he came to a place where he could totally relate to you and to me. So when we turn to Jesus, we need to have in the front of our mind, in the forefront of our thought, that this God I'm talking to knows what I'm dealing with. He knows what I'm enduring. He knows what I'm going through. If you're going through temptation, Jesus was tempted in the same ways that you are being tempted. He was tempted the same way Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. The devil has no new tricks up his sleeve. The world has nothing new to offer. He was tempted in the exact same way. If you're going through grief or loss or something tragic, Jesus can relate. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to have to be patient. He knows what it's like to be frustrated. He knows what it's like to have his motives questioned. He knows what it is to be alone, attacked, mistrusted. He knows what, it's, what it is to be single. He also knows what it's like to uh, need to figure out a way to provide for his family. He was betrayed, he was abused, and he was applauded and celebrated. So whether you're poor or you're rich, Jesus has nothing against you. And he can enter into your story and your circumstances and your situations and thrive. He can thrive in the big things you're working on and he can thrive and he knows what it is to be in the monotony of another mindless project at work. He was fully man. He knows what you're going through. The story is incredible. There's guys in the story. There's ladies in the story. There's tough people in the story. Okay, there's loners in the story. There's popular people in the story. There's introverts. There's extroverts. Jesus has no problem relating to you and thriving in your world and in your story and in your life. And this week, I want to flip this side of the coin and look at Jesus' deity, meaning, was he God? And I want to answer the question. I don't want to answer a question. I want to answer the question. Like the most important question. 
Is Jesus really God? And, and I know we're all in church today, so that's not really a big deal question for us today. But can we just let the gravity of that kind of settle in on us for a moment? We're asking, is Jesus, is the Jesus we read about in the Gospels, God? Is he the one who has ultimate sovereignty and authority over the world in which we live? That's a huge question. Is he the one that billions of people worship as Lord every day? Is he the one we question when something tragic happens? Is he the God we doubt when things don't go the way they should? Is he the God we cry out to when we are helpless and powerless? Is he the one that we call to when our life is on the line and we need there to be a God? Is that the God we cry out to? Is Jesus this God? Is he the one that we're looking for? Is Jesus really the one that created everything into existence by merely opening his mouth? Is he this God? I mean, is he the one who just by opening his mouth put the sun in the sky and it's so powerful I can't even look at it and if I'm out in it too long, it's gonna burn my skin even though it's 93 million miles away and he just said it. Is that Jesus? Is that who Jesus is? Well, in the story we've been looking into, Jesus has done something very God-like and very godly in healing this leper. And it's not hard for Jesus to do, but nonetheless, it's very miraculous and it's very powerful. And, And we kind of left the story there last week. But the next statement in the story It's pretty interesting. It says, Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes when Jesus does something amazing, he'll tell people not to tell anyone else? This was kind of his MO. Like, this is the way he kind of operated. He would do something amazing, and then he would tell the person, Don't tell anybody. I mean, if I could do what he did, I would want everyone telling everyone. What just happened? Why would he do this? Well, there's a couple things going on here. One is uh, that he simply just knew his time had not yet come for those kinds of things. And he wasn't interested in becoming a celebrity too early. For instance, there's another time when Jesus' mother comes to him. And she says, you got to do a miracle. And, And he says, well, he hesitates and says, well, my time for that really isn't here yet. Like, I'm not really... Should be, I really shouldn't be doing that yet. Now, I actually think these kinds of responses from Jesus help to confirm his deity. They help to confirm that he is God. Let, let me explain it this way. Uh, there's a saying in football, really in sports altogether, but especially, who's excited the NFL is back this weekend? I'm not going to, not a trick question, just if you're remotely excited. There's a guy wearing a stinking jersey, not raising his hand. Come on. <laughs> If, if you could not care less that the NFL is back this weekend, who's that in this room? I think that's going to be everybody at the 1130 service, right? But there's a saying in the NFL, it's act like you've been there. Okay, say that. Say it just like that. Act like you've been there. All right, it, it, it's, it's this idea that, that when you sack the quarterback, or when you catch or intercept a pass, or when you make a great kick, or 
or when you make it to the end zone and score a touchdown, act like you've been there before. Like, just chill out a little bit, okay? Get excited. It's a good thing. But really, that's what you're paid to do. You've done it before, and you're going to do it again. So don't do anything that's going to call a flag. Don't do anything that's going to gloat or make you a bad sport. Just, you've been there, but act like you've been there. Act like you've been there. Well, now a faker will never act like he's been there because he's just as surprised as everyone else that he's actually there. (laughs) When Jesus healed this leper, people were astounded. But Jesus was not surprised. When Jesus spoke, be healed, he didn't have his fingers crossed and wasn't just wishing upon a star that this would really come true. When he spoke it, he knew it would happen. He knew it would. But you see, other people had come and claimed to be the Messiah. But we don't know too much about them because they really didn't amount to much. They were all talk, no game. And all they had was a claim. And if they could somehow pull off something that seemed or appeared to be godlike, they would make a lot of noise about it and they would want everyone telling everyone because that's all they had. But it wouldn't amount to much. You see, a faker can't afford to be discreet. We know this. We've all been around this person or worked with this person that, man, when they finally get something right, they are not discreet about it, right? I mean, they got to let everybody know they finally got something right. But Jesus could afford to be discreet. He could afford to be coy. He could afford to play it down. He could afford to wait for his time to come because he was the real deal. This was not some flash in the pan. He was not standing over this miracle, shocked that it happened, thinking, man, this is the last time this is going to happen, so come on, get out there, start telling everybody. Uh, he, he's saying, healing a man of leprosy, come on, that's nothing. I am. I am the great I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. I've been there before. Okay, I've been here before. This is what I do. When all this was made, I was there. Like you see the stars in the sky, I've named every single one. I've been there. I was there when the whole earth was flooded. I was there in the burning bush. I was there when the staff turned into a serpent. I was there when the plagues all but consumed Egypt. I was there when the Red Sea split and my people got across it without so much as a drop of water on their clothes. And I was there when the waves started crashing back in and killed their enemies. And I was there with manna from heaven. I was there when the earth swallowed up Korah. I was there when the Jordan River parted. I was there when the walls of Jericho came down at the sound of my praise. I was there when the sun and moon stood still so the Israelites could avenge their enemies. I've been here before. I was there in the strength of Samson. I was there when the idol of Dagon fell on its face in front of my presence. And who do you think was there when its hands and feet were broken off after they'd set up that worthless idol in my presence again? I was there when the thunderstorm absolutely panicked 
the Philistines, and I was there when the widow's son was raised from the dead. I was there when my prophet Elijah called for the drought. I was there in the fire. I was there in the rain. I was there when he was brought up into heaven with the chariots. I was there when the 100 men were fed with only 12 loaves. I was there when Naaman was cured of leprosy. I was there when the Syrian army was blinded. I was there when they were cured. I was there when Elisha's bones revived the dead, and I was there when three Hebrew boys were thrown into a fiery furnace, and they walked out of there without so much as a hair on their arms singed, and I was there with Daniel and the lion's den. I'm telling you, I've been here before. This is what I do. This is my thing. So there was a time when people were surrounding Jesus, and they'd grown very suspicious and anxious, and and they're pressing in on Jesus, and you can picture it. It's just like, I mean, what would happen today when someone does something amazing and people are curious or people are suspicious? I mean, they surround the person, they stick a microphone in their face, they're backed into a corner, they're asked hard questions. And that's what the people are doing with Jesus. You find it in John chapter 10. So sometime later, the people surrounded Jesus and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I've already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. And I'd love for you to just hear the confidence in his voice when he says that. He's saying, I I don't have to tell you. I'll just show you. Like anybody can talk. I came here to actually do it. And let me tell you, it rubbed the people the wrong way because they start backing up. Not to get away from Jesus, they back up to look for a rock to throw at him and stone him and kill him on the spot for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. I love this. He says, you will know by the work I do. I don't have to tell you. I will just show you. I will, I will heal the sick. I'll fill the nets, I'll cast out the demon, I'll cleanse the lepers, I'll put the paralyzed on their feet, I'll raise the dead, I'll calm the storm, I'll control the weather, I'll make the blind see, I'll feed 5,000 men with just a, a lunchable, I'll walk on water, I'll make the deaf hear, I'll bring Lazarus back to life, and I'll take on the sins of the world and put every curse and every sin the world will ever know on myself and the weight of it, the tension of it will be so heavy, I'll be sweating my own blood and I'll survive a beating that most of you can't even stand to watch. And I'll hang on a cross for hours, barely being able to fill my lungs with air. And I'll do it until they just have to throw a spear through my side to finish it off. And then on the third day, the boulder in front of my tomb is going to blow away. And those who see me and those who believe in me will forever change the world. And because I am, because I am for them, the gates of hell will not overcome their mission. And 2,000 years from now, they'll still be going strong. So you can stand there and talk, but I've got work to do. You can stand there and visit about this and ask me questions, or you can just watch me do it. So it's really no big deal for Jesus to play this miracle down, for him to heal this leper and say, hey, buddy, this stays between you and me. Don't worry, there's more coming. It's all right. There's a lot more coming. Then he said, go to the priest and and let him examine you. And this is just, this is brilliant. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony. So this will be a public testimony. 
that you have been cleansed. And this really is the brilliance of Jesus because Jesus did not come to sidestep the law. He did not come to find a workaround and he didn't come to create a loophole. He came to fulfill the law. And he's instructing the man to follow the law. And where this is even smarter is that on top of that, the priest could verify that this was a miraculous healing. And can you just picture the priest, the village priest, as this former leper that he would have known of or known comes walking in the door, clean, everything's fine, everything's where it should be, and he walks in and he's, I mean, I can just picture the priest I just stunned eyes, speechless mouth. I mean, what? What? I love how Beth Moore puts this in, in one of her devotionals. My wife was sharing this with me this week, and I just want to read a few sentences from it. You can be fairly certain the village priest had never practiced the purification ritual to pronounce a leper clean. I can almost picture him reading the instructions in Leviticus 14 step by unfamiliar step like we read a new recipe. What a story he had for the missus that night. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can just picture the priest saying, well, yeah, there's, there's a law, there's a ritual to go through when people are cleansed, but I don't know it. I've never done that before. Like, I know it's in there, but I'm not even really sure where it is because people don't just like wake up one day and are healed from leprosy. Like, I was always wondering, like, why is that even in there? And it's because it's foretelling that God would come and heal lepers, that God would do it. Verse 15, but despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. And vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. And all I can say is that Jesus told this man to tell no one, yet he told everyone. But Jesus commands us to tell everyone, yet we tell no one. And I wonder whose disobedience is worse. So there's another encounter between Jesus and a leper, and it's worth a look. Uh, it's in Luke 17. Uh, it says, as Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. And as he entered the village there, 10 lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. And he fell at the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, hey, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God? Except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Now remember, leprosy in the Gospels is a symbol. It's a representation of, of our condition 
in sin and in our standing with God. And church does not work if only one out of ten come back and worship God. Church doesn't work if only one out of ten worship Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, I can just picture this guy with this crew, and they're, and they're going along, and this guy told them to go to the priest, so they're just walking to the priest. I mean, what else do they have? And as they're going along, they begin dancing and celebrating and picking up their pace because, hello, they're getting like fingers back, and they're getting a nose back, and they're, they're seeing skin that, that's just been infected with these sore spots disappear and be cleansed. And as they're celebrating, as they're going on, as they're moving on, one guy goes, wait a second, that guy healed us. I got to go back. Like, I know he told us to go, but I've got to go back first and worship him. I've got to go back and praise God. And so I just wonder, what's holding you back? Jesus Christ has saved you. He's cleansed you. He's done a miracle in your life. He's given you grace and peace and love. What's holding you back from falling at his feet and worshiping him and praising him as God? So many times when I'm talking to an unbeliever about Christianity, they'll give me uh, several reasons why they aren't a Christian. And and honestly, the reasons are legitimate barriers to becoming a believer, to becoming a Christian. And there there are reasons like, well, that's not the religion I grew up with, or I don't want to dishonor my family. Or they'll say, we tried church and the church really didn't help my family or really help us. Or they'll say, I can't understand why, why God, why a good God would let my friend go through what he's going through. I can't understand why God would allow me and my family the pain that we're enduring. And I can't answer all those questions well enough that, that someone would change their mind about God. But there is a question that, that remains And so I'll ask it. It's, what do you think about Jesus? Like, how do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And out of all the conversations I've had or that I've overheard or heard or heard of, I've never heard someone say, Jesus, well, he never existed. Maybe you have. I've never heard that. And I think it's because it would be really foolish to say that or to think that because there's just too much evidence. He existed, okay? He lived here. If I said he didn't, that would be like saying, well, George Washington never existed. So seriously, that's really never the thought. But what they will say is, well, I I think Jesus was just a good teacher. I think Jesus was just a good man. Nothing against your Jesus, but he was just a good prophet. And that's it. But let me ask you this. Does a good man, a good man, allow people to worship him as God when he's not really God? Does a good teacher teach that he is God when he's not really God? That's not a good teacher. Does a good prophet prophesy things and predict things that he really has no knowledge of with an authority that he really doesn't have, that's not a good prophet. Jesus was more than a good man. 
Was he a good man? Yes, he is the best. He lived a perfect life and he never sinned. He was a good man, but he was more than that. And Jesus was more than a good teacher. Was he a good teacher? Yes, the best. And we do well to live and die by his teachings, but he was more than a good teacher. And Jesus was more than a good prophet. Was he a good prophet? Yes, the best. And you can count on his message and you can count on his prophecies, but he's more than all that because Jesus is God. And he didn't just live a good life and then die. He came back from the grave and he ascended into heaven and one day he's returning. Did you know that Jesus didn't only prophesy about things, but he actually fulfilled prophecy? He was the fulfillment of prophecy. He actually fulfilled over 300 prophecies, predictions, and promises himself. The prophecies Jesus fulfilled may be the greatest proof of his deity. I mean, just a look at a few of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled, and it's staggering. Things happened to him in his life that could only happen if they were arranged by God himself. Let me just give you a few of these. The the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be called Emmanuel. He would be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. He would spend time in Egypt. Children would be killed at his birthplace. He would be rejected and despised by his own people. He would be declared the son of God. He would be called a Nazarene. He would speak in parables. He would be praised by little children. He would be falsely accused. He would be crucified with criminals. His bones would not be broken. Soldiers would pierce his side. He would be a sacrifice for sin. He would rise from the dead and he would ascend into heaven. 2 Corinthians 15.3 tells us, Paul tells us, I passed on to you what was most important. Could you just circle most important like 15 times? It's what's most important. What also had been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins. Just as scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. So I have some questions for you right now. And and no moving around right now, no visiting, no moving around. Let's just make this a, a sacred moment. How did Jesus arrange to be born in a specific family? And how did Jesus arrange to be born in a specific city in which his parents didn't even live? And how did he arrange his own death specifically by crucifixion with two others? And how did he arrange to have his executioners gamble for his clothing? And how did he arrange to be betrayed in advance and crucified on the exact day that the Jews sacrificed a spotless lamb for their sins? And how did he arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs of two of the victims on each side, but not his own? That was prophesied a thousand years before. And how did he arrange to come back to life on the exact day he said he would? 
well, I have an answer for you. It's because he's God. That's the only way he could arrange all that. And he died on that cross because he loves you and he would rather die than lose you. He would rather lose his life than lose you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And God arranged all these things, all these prophecies and predictions and promises fulfilled in Jesus. Did you know that God is still arranging things today? He is. He's in control and he's still arranging things and still putting things together. Do you know what else God has arranged? God arranged for you to be here today in this service. Because he loves you and he's been drawing himself to you. He is he's saved, he, he has spared your life so you could give your life to him and live for him. Not for a moment have you been off his mind. Now you can have all, all the information and the knowledge. But that won't ultimately be what saves you. Surrendering to him is what saves you. And you know it's time to stop fighting him and fighting his ways. It's time to surrender like a child fighting sleep. It's time to just give in and find your rest. It's time to follow God. I believe you know that you're tired of playing games, that you're tired of having one foot in the church and one foot in the world, and it's time to follow Jesus Christ. And if he can arrange all those things we talked about today, and he can, and he did, but if he can do that, he can change your life. He was just waiting for you to ask. And you might leave here today feeling better, or you might leave here feeling nothing at all, but the fact is, according to Scripture, if you ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, you are made right with Him, and you are saved. So as we go to prayer, I want to help you with a prayer, but the prayer isn't what saves you. But it is time to talk to God. It's time to get serious, and it's time to be sincere. So church, would you all pray this after me? Join with those around you who are giving their lives to Christ. And repeat after me, everybody say, God, I believe you died for me so I could live with you. Forgive me of my sins. Raise me to life. My life is not my own. I give it to you. You are my Lord. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name, amen.